I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. April is Animal Month on the book show, and if you have a companion animal in your life, I'll bet you've spent some time with someone who does what our guest does. A compassionate, receptive veterinarian is invaluable. Someone who honors your love for your pet and works with you to give that animal the best life he or she can possibly have. Dr. Karen Fine writes in her new book that one of the most fulfilling parts of being an experienced vet is that it is a tactile occupation. She loves the, quote, laying on of hands on her patients and the mindfulness that the best vets possess. We're going to talk about all of that. Dr. Fine has spent more than 25 years as a veterinarian, and she made house calls for many of those years. Her new book is titled The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. And she's with us today from central Massachusetts. And Dr. Fine, welcome to you. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I really love that idea of the laying on of hands because I I know it's something that people in the medical profession, human or animal, will do. But I also know there's an art form to it, whether it's your child or your dog who's in distress. And I'd like to hear more about your technique for the laying on of hands. How did you how did you think about it? How did you practice it? Well, I, I feel that it's so important, and partially with veterinary medicine, we we need to get as much information as we can from our physical exam, because I don't know if my client, say, will, will agree or be able to afford further testing. So it kind of goes back to, you know, in the, the older days of medicine, when, you know, maybe it took a long time to get blood work, you didn't have tests for things that you wanted, that that sort of thing. So when you're when you're in a office setting and you're trying to get as much information as you can, I feel like today sometimes doctors kind of sit across the room from you and there's mm-hmm. not as much of yeah. a, a physical exam. And certainly talking is very important. And I do a lot of talking with the with the animal's caretaker in terms of trying to find out different things. But I also want to I need to touch them to get information and I want to convey to them with my hands that they they can trust me that I'm not going to hurt them. So I that's also why I feel like that with the with the laying on of hands cuz with a person you could say okay this might hurt a bit it'll only last a minute or something like that. I I've never been able to say that to my patients. <laughs> well, I'm picture and you have some great descriptions of this in the book where you come into a house, maybe it's the first time you're encountering the caretaker and the animal. And, you know, the animal is frightened. It's an uncomfortable situation, even though this is happening in the house. How do you approach the idea of being able to touch that animal when you are entirely unfamiliar to them? I'm careful. And especially with cats, I would say for me, dogs are easier for me to kind of read and get a sense of. And it's not that I look for something specific in the body language. It's more that that interprets in my mind, you know, be careful, go slow. And then of course, you've got someone saying, oh, he's fine. He's never bitten anyone before, <laughs> which is sort of veterinary joke for, you know, yeah, you're going to be the the first one or, or whatever. Um, but I've learned to trust my instincts in terms of, you know, how, how 
quickly to approach? How cautiously to approach is this animal? How frightened is this animal? Are they likely to, to lash out in fright? I mean, you've ha- I know you've had that happen a few times, but much more rarely, I gathered from the book than I would have expected, given that you are really there to kind of prod a little bit, and most animals don't like that. Right, right. And part of it is working with, especially doing a, a house call. In the clinic, I have staff who can who can assist and hold the animal. In the home, I can put a muzzle on a dog. But other than that, it's it's um it can be pretty difficult. So I I, I explain to the owner how I want them to help hold. And a lot of people are just very motivated not to take their animal to a clinic. So, you know, maybe they're a little out of their, their comfort zone, but their motivation is such that it's, it's worth it for them. That's why they've called me to the home, right? Uh, depending on what's, what's going on in the animal. And some animals are totally fine. They're friendly. They're happy. Some animals are fine until you go to do something to them. Like they'll, they'll, you know, there's some dogs that'll just love on you all day until you go to try to take a blood sample from them and then, <laughs> you know, forget it. So it, it, it depends. Distraction is really important for animals too. Like when I'm giving a vaccine, I'll kind of go scratch, scratch, rub, rub, and then give the vaccine. And that actually kind of distracts your brain. So your your brain, there's not as much difference from sort of a, 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 you know, just like a gentle scratch, kind of a massage sort of sensation versus a needle going through the skin. So mm. from, from your, 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 your brain, that's sort of a, a better experience or even a, a noise or a sound or talking sometimes with cats will kind of, um, you know, move the head back and forth a little bit, because if your head's going back and forth, you're a lot less worried about what's going on on your back leg. Say <laughs> So it's just a sort of a good distraction or I'll tell the person, you know, talk to them, sometimes tap them gently on the head, that, that kind of a thing. So distraction's very important. I really loved what you wrote about mindfulness and how you developed a, a, a practice of mindfulness that has ended up being really valuable for your in-home interaction with animals. And you describe this as it's important not to let your thoughts rush ahead, but to really be in the moment, taking your time, full powers of observation on. My guess is that in that state, you're not only picking up clues from, you know, the caretaker, the human in the room, but you're also really mindfully listening for clues from the animal. I'm interested in how you developed the mindfulness, because this sounds obviously meditative in a way. And I, I guess I don't think of that in the in the moment of, you know, the quick interaction with an animal. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I guess, you know, it kind of depends what the situation is and what's going on. And it's not that I can't get to that point in a clinic. It depends what's going on with the animal and the person. But the when I've really felt it the most is when is during or just before or surrounding euthanasia, because there's so much focus on that animal and that animal's life and their presence and just their just that animal from from the from the person and certainly from me in terms of a regular appointment in the clinic it's a little easier i think to be thinking oh my goodness the waiting room you know i'm backed up i've got people waiting in the waiting room i've got a sick animal out back i've got to remember to check on their blood work so it's a little bit 
harder sometimes in the clinic when you've got all these other things. In somebody's home, I have to really focus because I'm not, I'm not really in control of the environment. And sometimes that could mean there's an aggressive dog they've put in another room that I can hear barking and I'm a little worried about, but usually that's not the case, but I'm, I'm not in control. So I really have to kind of have the benefit of all my, my senses going. And I'm not, I'm really not thinking about, am I late for my next appointment? And I usually would give people a range, a time range. So I say, I'll be there between 10 and 1030. So depending on how I'm running, you know, it's not as much of a, hopefully a concern for people. They're waiting at home and people would usually tell me if they had a, a time constraint, but certainly the, the meditative aspect, um, mostly with, with euthanasia, cause there's just such a full focus and such a sort of a, a focus on life and death and the, the preciousness of this creature, this being that this person is so bonded to who I may have met just for the first time, or I may have known them for years. So it's, it really depends for me on that situation. Now, let's talk about euthanasia since it's come up a little earlier than I thought it would. But but I think this is this is such this is the most fraught moment for people who love animals and have an animal in their home. And you've obviously personally been through this as a pet caretaker, but also as a veterinarian. I, I recently interviewed some other veterinarians for whom this is a specialty. They go into homes and. Oh, uh, yeah, help. yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting growing specialty on this. One of the things that everybody said was that it is so important to come in and validate the decision that the pet caretaker has made. And I'm curious about whether you find the same. Absolutely. I have felt um, for a long time that that's very important. And, and I like what you said, too, about it being fraught. It's a very fraught time. And there's not a lot of discussion in our culture about it. And that's really right. why I wanted to write the book. I wanted to talk about this. And I wanted people to feel that they're not alone. And quite often, there is a spectrum of time. Um, and every animal's different, but often when an animal is failing, there's a spectrum of time where I would consider euthanasia to be an acceptable option. So, you know, to tell people, yes, it, it is okay. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, they were a little better today. Um, you know, they, they, he took a few steps this morning or she ate a little bit, you know, she's having a good day. And then I'll say, well, you know, it's not a bad thing that the last day is a good day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, provided I still feel that, yes, euthanasia is warranted, which typically, you know, it, it is. And the, the advent of veterinarians doing only in-home euthanasia is fairly new, about the last right. maybe 10 years. And before that, I was the only um, mobile vet in my area. So I was the only one that people could call to do in-home euthanasia. So wow. I did it for a number of years and it was sort of, you know, now you can make a career out of just that. Um, and there is, you know, people really value that, that service for a reason. And I saw, I saw so much love, you know, it's, it's a very intense experience though. And I have to say doing, doing only that would not be, I think for, for me, but I also, um, you know, having been in practice for 
30 years, I have a lot of clients I've had for, for decades. And I, I don't, I, not only do I know them and their current animal, I remember their previous animals as well. And I really value having that relationship with people. So I think it always was easier for me if I didn't know the people, if it was a stranger and I was going into their house to euthanize their animal, that was always easier for me than if I did know the person, just because, you know, I can, I, I can try to set them at ease. Um, but knowing the person, then that becomes something that's, you know, emotional. It's another layer for me emotionally as well. I think the, I think this, the struggle with this and what, what some of the other vets that I was interviewing about this said is, you know, as the caretaker and the one who loves the animal, you ne- you don't want to do this too soon. There's a lot of guilt that comes along with this idea that did I, did I end this life too soon? But these veterinarians told me that there is kind of a philosophy among vets that says, you know, maybe a moment too soon than a day too late, because you don't want to get into a situation where the animal is suffering. How do you think of that? So I have heard that. I guess I'm not a huge fan of that saying, just because there's so much pressure already. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people tend to feel very guilty afterwards, because with the benefit of hindsight, they look back and think, you know, oh, I should have made the decision sooner. And, you know, perhaps that's true with the benefit of hindsight. But when you were making the decision, you didn't have the benefit of hindsight. And so maybe you were feeling that, okay, there well, there's still hope. um, And you want to give them every chance. And certainly different people are different in terms of their comfort level with, um, you know, sort of holding out hope versus, you know, discomfort. And I say to people that, you know, there's, there's suffering, but there's also discomfort. If you're just not comfortable, you know, where does that cross into suffering and and pain? But Mm -hmm. there's there, you know, if you're just not comfortable and we sort of know where this is going, um, you know, I definitely try to talk to people. And I think maybe, maybe what it is, is that that saying for me makes sense in the the moment of decision-making, but not afterwards, because I feel like so many people, um, regret afterwards. There's just, um, I feel like almost an epidemic of people thinking, you know, I, I, I didn't do right by my animal. And mm. usually that's not the case. You know, people make their decisions with the best information that they have at the time with their best, you know, with their animal in the forefront. And I've certainly seen people that, whether it's denial, occasionally you run across someone who just says, I don't believe in euthanasia, but that's less common. Um, and of course, people are reluctant to let go. Who, who wants to say goodbye to their, their animal? But I would say for the most part, um, people kind of step up and do it when it's, it's in that spectrum of time when it's reasonable. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's hard and I can see where that, that saying has a place perhaps, but I just, I feel like I see so many people who will say things like, you know, well, I, I didn't, I didn't make the right decision for my last animal. Um, Mm. and that's, that sort of remains their narrative and that really, um, bothers me. I feel like that shouldn't be their narrative. And you know what, even if they did, even if they can look back and say, you know what, I, 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 
didn't make a good decision. I had the information and even I, and I still didn't make a good decision. That's not the whole narrative of that animal's life and their relationship with their animal. And not that I'm encouraging people to, you know, sort of wait too long until the animal, you know, and, and that's why we're here as veterinarians. We're the objective people saying, you know, okay, you know, this, this is what's going on. And this is, you know, I think this animal's not comfortable. They're suffering. We think it's time. That's, that's our, you know, our job as well. You know, it's hard for people to do that. So I feel that we are partnering with people to help them to, to come to that decision. But I don't want people to feel that, that, you know, that, and sometimes things don't, don't go well, you know, it's just, it's just not everybody has a, you know, a good, a good death story, but, you know, hopefully they had a good life and they gave their animal friend a, a really good life. You know, Karen, I have to say, I, I was comforted to read that you had as much self doubt that, that I've had, that we've had in our family about mm. when it is time to make this choice. I thought, oh my gosh, if she's gone through, you know, second guessing <sighs> herself as a vet, you know, it, it, it just, again, you kind of alleviated that, um, th- those incessant questions about, was it too soon? Did I make the right choice when I made it? So, uh, I think you've experienced some guilt over over the timing, right? Oh, I, I definitely have. And, you know, I think it's not to say that it's universal and sometimes things are clear, but I think for the, for, for yeah. And my grandfather used to say, there's no death without guilt. So I think it is, it is very common and certainly, you know, vets are not immune. And that's, that's really why I wrote, I, that's why I wanted to write about my experience just to share that, this is how common it is that even professionals are, are not immune. We struggle just as much and, or, you know, de- depending on the individual, of course, but it, we're, we're certainly not immune. And it, it's a very difficult thing to feel that you have this control. And I think, you know, a lot of people, it's hard for me to imagine because I've been a veterinarian for so long, but I think people who certainly don't have the medical background, um, probably feel even more like, you know, I don't feel comfortable enough to make this decision. How am I going to make this decision? It's a very fraught, that word you used. It's, it's just a very difficult moment in our, our relationships with our animals and they're, they're trusting us to do the best for them. And I think we're very aware of that. Yeah. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas, and April is Animal Month on the show. Dr. Karen Fine is with us. She's been a longtime veterinarian. She made house calls for many of those years and has written a new memoir. I mean, there's a lot of practical information in this, but it's also a wonderful memoir about Karen's experience as a vet and her experience with her own animals and the philosophy that she brings into her practice as a veterinarian. The book is called The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. I want to talk about your grandfather since you brought him up. Um, he was a <laughs> physician. W- was it in South Africa? Do I remember that? It was right in there? South Africa, yes. Okay. He yeah. also um, went into people's homes when they couldn't come to his office. What did you? Growing up, what kinds of stories did he, when I know you'd go to visit him in South Africa and he'd tell you stories about his patients and his practice. What do you remember hearing about that? 
He would say things like, you know, how can people practice without without going to people's homes? And just my grandfather's way about him. He was just a very gentle, kind, kind of, well, you know, I'm thinking when he was older, but so sort of slow moving. He was just very calm and patient. And the first thing he would do would be to take my hand and feel my pulse. And it, that, that laying on of hands, it was the first thing he would do. And no matter what my, my problem was, if I said I had a headache or he would always look at my hands too, because I had eczema on my hands, which I still have occasionally now, but it was worse Do when I was really? a child. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 So he would always look at, he'd examine my hands very closely, very carefully. But the first thing he would do would be to feel my pulse. And it's just so interesting to me because for, for most people, you know, you go to the doctor, they take your temp, um, they take your blood pressure, maybe your pulse ox, but n- nobody's feeling your pulse. And when, when they feel your pulse, it's, you know, it's a really like sort of hand holding, um, if you've ever been for acupuncture, then they take your pulse. And then when I learned about acupuncture, it's, it's a lot about pulse taking and pulse taking mm-hmm. is a part of the traditional Chinese medicine physical exam. And I just really wished I could talk to my grandfather mm-hmm. and talk about pulse taking. It was just, just so interesting, but I think what a, what a way to sort of just initiate touch with your patient and you're going to feel, you know, are there, are there, the ha- is the hand hot and sweaty? Is it cold and clammy? Is it trembling? You know, all these things you're going to learn just from that, touch. You know, I'm thinking about your grandfather and, and and the physicians back in the day who went into people's homes, who made these house calls, and how much information you would gather just by entering someone's home that might be informative or influential about whatever was going on, whatever brought the physician into the home. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. That must have been meaningful for your grandfather. Yeah. I'm sure it was. And he used to tell, you know, I didn't get to see my grandfather that much because he lived in South Africa, but my father would talk about how he would say, you know, he'd go into a home and that was usually tidy and the curtains would be drawn on a, on a gorgeous sunny day. And the person would be, you know, sitting in a dark room, you know, with like a sink full of dishes that was usually not that way. Um, you know, and certainly you, so you kind of also know what's, what's normal for somebody, so I think that's also a, a really helpful thing. And I think my, my grandfather thought a lot about psychiatry and mental health, and he was able to notice those kinds of things, which really helped him to think, you know, I remember my dad saying, well, you know, there was a, a woman who, um, you know, kept having headaches and he would go into the home and find this, you know, n- not a very sort of comfortable, happy home situation. And the, the husband was was beating her. And so he's thinking, well, you know, it's not really a, a pain reliever headache situation. He knows why she's having headaches. And he can see, you know, sort of how she's living and that, you know, she's got these kids running around and whatever's going on. And, you know, so I think he really was able to see the whole picture. Whereas someone comes in and says, I have a headache. You don't see any of that. It did, I, I'm trying to remember if he lived long enough to know that you went into medicine, but the medicine for animals. 
Did he know that? He did. He did. Okay. And he died. He actually died of ALS, of Lou Gehrig's oh, disease, right. which he got as an older person. So, I mean, he was relatively lucky in that he was in his 80s when he got it. But he he died in my last year of veterinary school. And then I inherited his doctor bag, which was, was a wonderful you, thing. Yeah. Do you still have it? I do. I do. And I, I used it for house calls for a number of years. And then I started to get shoulder problems from kind of picking it up. And then I went to a backpack. <laughs> but I still have it. It's a very What's treasured it possession. Like? It looks like actually it's on the back of the book because it was very important oh, to me. I asked if the artist could um, could draw oh, it, and it I is. sent a picture. Yes. Yeah, and that's that's his doctor bag, and it's exactly like the the photograph I sent the artist Love it. who Let's is in Scotland. It. Yeah, so, so it's um, it looks like a briefcase. Yeah, right, with latches with um, gold or silver latches on the top. Yes, sort of like a gold finish latches. And there's a little combination that I just have set. It was always set to zero. (laughs) So I just have it set to zero. And it's got a little flap on the outside, which I had to have repaired because it was chewed by a couple of puppies. I think probably both my own and at during house calls, I would see a dog gnawing on it. Um, And then you would open it and it was sort of... um, compartment on either side. So it would open sort of like a a suitcase would open um, that the same size compartment on either side. And then it had, it has clear sort of see-through things over the compartment so that you could kind of unlock it and open it and see where I I might have syringes and medications and heartworm tests or, or something like that. So I was able to keep everything in in there. So I would I would take it around, and it was it was just really neat that it was my my grandfather's. I know. Is that a is that a little stethoscope that is hanging out? Sticking of out. Yes. Yes. So do you? I'm trying to remember my last trip to the vet with our dog. Do you use a stethoscope still? Yes. Often? Yes. Do you? Huh. Yes, for for every exam, I'm still listening listening to the heart and lungs. So that's definitely part of our of our physical exam. What what kinds of new equipment, new instruments have you tucked into your backpack that you're taking out on house calls or or even using in the office um, that weren't available to you when you graduated from vet school? There are some uh, some new things, although I have to say a lot of it is pretty much the same. Um, probably the biggest new thing would be that a lot of people, like say starting a house call practice now, most people would be paperless. So they would have everything on the computer. They might be taking a photo and uploading it to the record, which can be very valuable if you're looking at a lump or a skin problem, rash or something like that. Just having a photo can be very, very helpful. And, you know, and you might say, I, and I've said to people, you know, send me a picture in a week and I want to see what this looks like. I want to see if I need mm. to see it again or something like that, which is a little bit like telemedicine, but it's sort of like, okay, I, I want to know, you know, is it getting better or do I need to, you know, take, take another look with my eyes in person? Um, trying to think one thing that comes to mind there's something called a tonopen um those are fairly pricey but th- that is used to take your um the eye pressure to see if somebody oh. has glaucoma so i think those have become a little more easy to to use lately but you know most of it is pretty much the same i you know just syringes a tourniquet i can draw blood i can give vaccinations 
Um, that, that's kind of what I started doing, an, an ophthalmoscope, and otoscope to look in eyes and ears. And then I, I've done a lot of um, acupuncture house calls where I have a little, it, it looks like a little fishing tackle box where I have my, my acupuncture needles. And so that was, was really sort of low, um, low tech. So that's, that's another thing that I would do would be the, the acupuncture. So yeah, a lot of it with the house calls, I mean, it's it certain, like taking an x-ray or something, you have to go into a clinic or some people have mobile vans for that. And I practice in an area where there are a lot of clinics. So I never felt like, okay, I'm in a really rural area and there's only me. So I have to have everything. I kind of felt like, well, you know, if an animal needs an x-ray, they're just going to have to go into a clinic. There's this, I'm not going to be able to, to try to do something like that. And the the same with surgery. I thought I'm not going to anesthetize anybody in the home. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought this was interesting. You write that the house call life, and that's a quote, is somewhat mysterious to vets who practice in clinics. What, what is mysterious to <laughs> vets that do this all at, at an office? I, I think it's, you know, people think, oh, well, these animals must be really pampered or something like that. I remember <laughs> talking to a colleague one time and, and thinking, oh, really? Is that, you know, sort of what you think? And there's really a, a good cross-section of people that prefer a house call. And some of them, it's just hard for them to get to the clinic. And some of them, you know, maybe they have three animals and one of them is aggressive to other dogs or it's a cat that gets really upset. Um, a dog that has diarrhea in the car would be a good candidate oh, for a house oh, call. Um, yeah. And, you know, certainly some senior citizens or people that um, don't or can't drive for some reason. And, you know, it really made me feel good because there. I just remember, you know, more than once a senior citizen would say to me, you know, I can get a ride. Um, you know, my daughter or my neighbor, I can ask them, but it's just really nice that I don't have to. And I thought, wow, you know, I, I felt really good that, you know, making this person, you know, feel more, be more independent, that they were able to take care of their animals needs without, you know, sort of asking for help. They could save that, <laughs> that yeah. favor if they needed it and just feel like, you know what, I'm, I'm dealing with it, you know, on my, on my own. And uh, so that, that was definitely something, um, people with multiple animals. And there certainly is a closer relationship with a house call vet, especially because I really didn't hire anybody. So there, there are some house call practices where they may have a receptionist, they may have a technician, but for me, there was only me. So my overhead mm. really was time. And if somebody called me, I had to call them back. And so that, that did become fairly time consuming. And I actually stopped doing house calls during COVID. When COVID first happened, I thought, you know, well, the, the last place I want to go now is into someone's right. home. It was, you know, I was not, you know, doing that. And then, and then I, you know, as time went on, I thought, you know, it's been 25 years and that's been a long time of kneeling on other people's bathroom floors, examining their cats. <laughs> and I, I think I'm ready to, you know, the, the writing was taking more and more time. And I thought, you know, I think I'm ready to just say, you know, 25 years is a really good run <laughs> for the house you calls. Mean for the house calls, yeah. You're, you're for still the house seeing- calls. I'm still practicing in the office. Yes. And a lot of my (laughs) house call clients come and see me in the office. So I've been able to maintain a lot of those relationships. 
It's good to know. Dr. Karen Fine is with us. She's a veterinarian, a longtime vet. You just heard she spent 25 years doing house calls. Uh, but now she's back practicing in an office and she's written a memoir with a lot of practical advice as well. And that kind of also delves into her philosophy of practicing medicine. It's called The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. Okay, I put a question out on Twitter for um, people who were interested in not specific diagnoses. Don't worry about that, Karen. But um, <laughs> larger, I know, because you probably get plenty of that. Um, but larger questions, um, you know, just about caretaking and those kinds of things. So Sarah mm -hmm. Beth asks... Do you have any advice for safely establishing a weight loss diet for a senior dog? Oh my gosh, this is always a challenge, isn't it? Right, it is, it is. And, and weight loss is, um, it can be very important. Keeping your animal at an ideal weight can can really help with getting them to live the the sort of longest, healthiest life. So, and that it is to some extent in, in our control. So safely doing it, I would say you don't want to do it too quickly. And you certainly want to ask from advice from your veterinarian and, you know, for your animal as an individual, how, you know, how much weight are we talking? What should I be doing? And what I often say to people is, you know, for one thing, you can weigh them. If the animal's big enough for you to pick up, and you have a scale at home, you can then um, weigh them maybe once a week or something like that and sort of see how they're doing. Otherwise, you can go into the vet clinic and, and get their weight. And one thing that often happens is people give a lot of treats and they may not be thinking about it. You know, I've heard people say, well, you know, he only gets a cup or whatever. Um, but, you know, what does he get for, what does he get for treats or, or table food? And I'm not opposed to table food, but I think it really needs to be done thoughtfully as opposed to sort of pizza crusts and whatever, whatever's <laughs> left. Um, but for, for treats, a lot of animals, a lot of dogs, especially like carrots. So I'll say to people, instead of buying the box of dog cookies, if you can get a bag of baby carrots and just keep it in the fridge, some dogs like green beans, they like the crunch. And um, yeah, I saw this was a cat, but recently we were talking about weight loss and it was a cat. It was a woman and her two daughters. And they were saying, well, everybody gives the cat treats every day, a couple <laughs> of times a day. Oh and they give them like a handful. So then I was thinking, wow, wow. you know, this really could add up. Um, yeah. So we were talking about all the different kinds of treats and I was saying, okay. Um, and my, my goal too, is I really don't want to interrupt that human animal bond because a lot of times that giving of treats is a, is a, happy part of the day for the person and the animal. So I don't want to, you know, really interfere with that too much. I'm not going to say, well, you can't give treats because for one thing, I don't think people are going to listen. Um, but I also feel like that's not, not fair to anybody really. So it's sort of what you give and can you break the treat in half? Um, if you toss them three treats, you know, are they, are they going to notice if they're smaller? You're going to know, but the, the dog, if he eats them without even chewing, they're, probably not gonna not gonna notice you know so you you have to like not you know you have to act the same and see if you can get them to to you know not realize that that that's going on but I feel like that's very important too and um you know and exercise is an important thing yeah. as well so Let's it talk is about 
Yes. Karen, <laughs> yes, let's talk exercise. about exercise because <laughs> I think people start off with very good intentions, but exercise mm-hmm. is like as tell me if this is not true, is as big a part of your dog's or animal's quality of life as anything else. I think that's the thing that kind of falls away if pet caretakers get busy. What what will you say about how important exercise is? So there's kind of a new word, which is enrichment. So ah. it, enrichment sort of en- encompasses exercise, but enrichment is also, you know, how is their brain working? And one right. of the things with it is when you take your dog for a walk, letting them sniff because they get so much information from their nose. And it's such an important part of their of their outing is to be sniffing. So certainly, you know, if you're going for a run and your dog's coming with you, that's one thing, but you, it's also important to let them take that time to sniff because that's really important for them. And if you Google canine enrichment and feline enrichment, there are a lot of different things about that and how you can have your animal in in what's called an enriched environment so that there are things for them to do. And I feel like, especially since COVID, I've been seeing more anxiety, especially in dogs. And so this is Mm. something I've been talking to people a lot about. There's a, a really good Facebook page called Canine Enrichment that I think started during the pandemic and it's just mushroomed and it's a, a behaviorist in England, I believe, in the UK. And it's it's just fascinating what um, what people are doing. And you can get a lot of good ideas from there. So it's not just exercise. And sometimes there are times when say an animal has a, an injury and they can't go for a walk. How do you how do you keep them occupied? So that's that's enrichment. Uh, here's a question from Julie who says why do some dogs eat feces and others do not when they are all eating the same food? And I will say, I know Julie and she knows her dogs. She's a musher. So, oh, wow. Cool. Um, it's a good question. We've had it's a very good that, question. <laughs> you know, that have done that and it's just, uh, I don't understand it. So fill us in. Yeah, that is a tough one. You know, some dogs do it and some dogs don't. And it does, you know, it's it's what we call a dog thing. But yeah. it could be, you know, so it's not that there's something that you can define that's lacking in the diet. It's not like I can say, well, you need to add this supplement and that will take care of it. Some uh-huh. of the things that people add to try to deter the practice, one of them does, um, like papain is an enzyme that's in some of the products and I think it comes from pineapples, actually. You can add pineapple to your dog's food and that, that could, it just sort of breaks it down a little bit more. So uh-huh. the, the theory is that, okay, you're, you know, if you're breaking it down a little more, it's not going to come out and still be kind of appetizing on the other end. There won't be as much to digest. You could try switching diets and see if that's something that helps. But some some dogs just do it and it still smells, you know, when the food comes out, there is still something that for them to digest and, you know, my, my, <laughs> <Something> my, <alluring. laughs> yes. And, you know, if you're a musher and you're in a cold climate, you know, my father calls it poopsicles, <laughs> you know, something that's frozen <laughs> oh and cold. Gosh. Um, so you could try, and then this is, this is sort of goes back to the enrichment thing as well, is that you can take a, like a Kong toy or there's something called a topple, which is just a, similar to a Kong, a little easier to mm-hmm. clean and you fill it with food 
food, or you can fill it with, say, plain yogurt, mashed banana, diff- different things, and freeze it. Yeah. And the dog has oh, to yeah. really work on it. It's not just like, okay, they lick it out five minutes, it's done. They've got to twist, turn it this way in their paws and turn it that way in their paws. And on this Facebook page I was describing, people have like, sheet trays of these things, which they've layered with different materials and they've got your know, people really good at town, but you can get <laughs> some good great. ideas from that. But it's possible, um, you know, if your dog is chewing it, that you could maybe, um, you know, if you're giving your dog something frozen inside to work on, that maybe they wouldn't be as interested in frozen poopsicles outside. Or maybe your dog is outside a lot. If it's a, you know, if it's a a mushing dog and maybe it spends quite a bit of time outside, you could give them this outside and that, that may help. Good idea. Okay. Here's uh, Dr. Porter. And I want to ask this question because um, in this month, animal month on the show, I've done a conversation about wolves and our perception of wolves. Oh, the book is just great. Highly recommended, Karen. Um, It's called Wolfish. But uh, here I've Dr. seen Porter's. the cover. Yeah, you have, yeah. yeah. Erica I've, I've seen the cover. I'd like to read it. Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, here's Dr. Porter who says, um, "Ask your guest if she can explain how dogs are a favorite animal, but wolves, who are not bothering anyone in their wilderness homes, are considered game animals to kill." <sighs> yeah, you have some oh. thoughts on that. Oh, that's a tough one. And I live in New England, so I'm not as much in an environment where people are sort of talking about killing wolves. But yeah, I know. I I don't understand either. I, I think it's you know, this whole perception of, well, they're encroaching on our areas, whereas mm-hmm. really it's us that's encroaching on their areas. Um, and wolves, a lot of people love wolves, you know, so I, yeah, I think it's, it probably comes from, you know, they're disturbing our, our, our animals, you know, whether it's sheep or cows or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I think there is a movement to protect wolves and, you know, yeah, it, it makes me yeah. sad as, as well to think about that. I, I wish I had some more answers. I think we're benefiting from that movement in Minnesota. One of the things that Erica says is there there's a lot of culture that um has grown up around associating wolves and with fear i mean from the time you hear fairy tales about little red riding hood she makes a pretty compelling case you think about the way our language uh attaches you know the idea of wariness and fear with wolves so anyway i it was a really good conversation. It's on the podcast um, if you missed it. So I hope you'll listen. Okay. Uh, yeah. a, a question here about your own pets, because mm-hmm. I just found this, uh, the, the, the part of, of your memoir where you wrote about Raina, is it Raina or Rana? Raina? Uh, her name is Rana. Her name was Rana. Rana. Sorry. Okay. What they taught you about, you know, patience and kindness and selflessness. I mean, they clearly made you a better veterinarian, but I think they made you a better person. Is that fair to say? It is. I I can't imagine living without dogs and cats. I grew up without them. And now I just, they're just such an important part of 
my life. And it's funny because my husband, my husband grew up with dogs, but he was kind of phobic of dogs when we met. And every once in a while, now he loves our animals and they love him. But he'll say, it's so funny to have these creatures inside the house. And I'll say, you know, but it's just so natural. Yeah, like it's so natural to me. He'll say as they're like on his lap with the head on his shoulder, you know, he'll say something like, isn't this interesting that we live with these creatures in the home? And to me, it just just feels like, yeah, it's just so natural. What did your husband think when you proposed that Rana would be in the wedding? <laughs> he 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 thought it was sort of you know strange, but he you know his attitude <laughs> uh-huh. was like, well, you're a veterinarian, so people expect you to be strange around animals, <laughs> and he was totally in love with her as well. And part of that whole experience with her was seeing, you know, him grow to to really love her so much and so deeply, especially when she was diagnosed with cancer. So he understood and and he has, I mean, you've indoctrinated him is what it sounds yes, like. Yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> he's come around. Um, he has come I, around, I, yes. I, I'm interested you mentioned the pandemic a, a few minutes ago. I'm interested in what you think about, you know, the big rush to adopt animals while everybody was at home. Now humane societies have a lot of animals in them from people who discovered, you know, it's it's not a picnic every single day to have a companion animal. Uh, I guess I, I want to ask you if there are some <clears throat> families, people who just really are not cut out for a companion animal at a certain time in their life or any time? Do you encounter people like that? I do. I would say not as much, especially because I do acupuncture. So the people that are drawn to that are people that are very bonded with their animals. So I've sort of Um, you know, kind of selected maybe for people that tend to be more bonded. But it's not that I don't see that. And I think, you know, it's a very big commitment. And I think people need to look at it as that. I think any, you know, really, certainly any rescue, animal rescue person will say, you know, an an animal's a big, a lifetime commitment for their their lifetime. And certainly things happen. Um, There's no question that there are first- for some people, extenuating circumstances beyond their control. But other than that, I think, you know, one thing that concerns me is that puppies, especially now, can be sort of an impulse buy. And that Mm -hmm. there are a lot of these online sites where you can go click, click and just order a puppy. And if you're really taking your time and thinking about bringing an animal companion into your life, if you're getting them from a reputable breeder, it's not going to be a click-click situation. Reputable breeders are, um, you know, they you might have a waiting list for a litter. They may ask you a bunch of questions, that type of thing. So the people selling puppies online, those are from puppy mills. And I think, you know, maybe maybe that has something to do with it as well. And not that all those puppies are not loved, that, that people have done that. I think a, a lot of them are. But I think also from rescues and shelters, I think that's why people go to those sites. Is say it's similar with rescues and shelters as reputable breeders is that, um, 
you know, it can take a while. They have to ask you questions. Oh, that one that you really liked. Well, someone got there ahead of you. Um, that, that kind of thing. And I just want to clarify too, by reputable, reputable breeders, I mean, what I call a reputable breeder, because when you go to these online sites, they all say our puppies come from reputable breeders, but well, then no how, reputable. How do you know then? Yeah. It's very difficult. And they've really, um, the Humane Society calls it puppy mill double speak, which I think is an excellent term. Then they're sort of saying, oh, no, we're not, you know, what you've heard. In fact, we hate puppy mills. <laughs> They'll say, you know, we detest puppy mills and we work against puppy mills. And, you know, all this stuff can be on these websites. But the mm-hmm. Humane Society has a great page about how to avoid puppy mills. And basically, no reputable breeder would sell their dog to anyone with a credit card. That's just not what reputable breeders, they really care about their animals as individuals. They want them back if there's a problem. If you run into extenuating circumstances in a few years and can't keep them, most of the time these breeders will take their animals back because they're they're just very invested in all their dogs and they don't want them out there in a shelter or elsewhere. They want to make sure they'll find another home for them. They'll or they'll keep them. So it it's just um you know, it's just become a little too easy, I think, to get um to get a puppy. So that may be part of the issue. And I think our lives are just, you know, people's People's lives change, um, but also I think the first year of having a dog, you really have to put a lot into it. You need to train right. them, and you know, and we'll see. You know, you can tell when a dog comes in and it have, really has had no training. You know that it's just all over the place, and not not that my animals are perfectly trained because that's not the case. But um, <laughs> if you've never ever had a dog even sort of sit, and now it's coming in, and we have to try to kind of restrain it and you know give it a vaccine, it's um, it's a lot more difficult than a the dog that really hasn't been handled very much. And I always recommend obedience and puppy class to people. I always recommend it. And I, I, absolutely. And I used to teach puppy training, but I'll say when I get a puppy, I go to class because I just feel like there's no substitute for that experience with those other animals and those other people and getting them to focus on you. And it helps really bond you together. So I, I feel that that's really important. And and I think what you know and what I know is what they're really doing is training you to train the dog. Absolutely. Right? Looking at your behavior, <laughs> not really the dogs. There's another thing I wanted to ask you about before we close. Um, the CDC reported last spring that one in six veterinarians have thought about suicide and the highest rates of depression. I was really startled to read this are among women veterinarians. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's a big problem. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like burnout is a constant problem. I'm sure you've reached places where you felt this compassion fatigue. Is this something that you've talked about yeah. among your your other women vet colleagues? And where do you think it comes from? 
So there, there's been a lot of debate about where it comes from. And I think um, most veterinarians, a lot of us are perfectionists and we're sort of taught, I, I especially was in vet school was a little bit more draconian when I, when I went to mm-hmm. vet school. But, um, you know, you're sort of taught to kind of suck it up. You don't take a sick day. You show up, you do the work, you don't complain, you stay late, you do what you need to do. And there's not really a lot of modeling of, you know, sort of discussion or how does this affect people. And since this, the, the news about the suicide risk has, has been known and been made more widely available, there's been a big focus in the profession on wellness. Wellness being, you know, make sure you get enough sleep and make sure you eat well and take care of yourself. And I have, I guess, little mixed feelings about that. I'm really proud of the profession for for stepping up and saying we need to address this. But I think that wellness um, doesn't go nearly far enough. I think we need to look at why we're having these issues in the first place, because it is a very demanding profession. And I think over the last 10 and 20 years, people have been more and more bonded to their animals. And we are sort of these intermediaries and we're there for these quality of life discussions. And and then people blame us for things as well. Mm. People get angry at us mm. if they can't afford something or something unexpected happens. And, and this is fairly frequent for most veterinarians. And a lot of us take that, take that hard. Um, The other thing about wellness is it almost, um, it can potentially feel like the the blame is on you. If you're feeling, um, if you're struggling, well, you're, you're, you're not taking good enough care of yourself. And that's certainly something that I think the profession wants to avoid, you know, people feeling even more, you know, sort of bad about themselves. Well, of course, I'm not exercising and eating right and sleeping right if I'm dealing with these other things. It's good to have those habits in place. It's good to understand that they're important, but we really need to look at the profession. And I feel that we need to, my belief is that we need to learn to reflect on our experiences and talk about them. And that some of us have these very difficult experiences on a daily basis. And you you don't have really control over what's coming your way that particular day. You know, I may have an appointment that turns into a euthanasia. If I give someone bad news, someone may arrive, you know, you just, you just don't, you can't say, I just want to take it easy today. So yeah. things come up yeah. and we have things that go on in our lives with our family members and our own animals. And it, it just becomes very um, difficult, I think. So I think reflection on why it's important and maybe some more understanding both within the profession and people who bring their animals to the vet. I think also understanding that, you know, yes, it can be difficult and expensive for them, but, you know, we're, you know, most veterinarians are not driving around in BMWs and, you know, we're, the reason we couldn't fit your animal in today is because we're swamped, not because Mm -hmm. we're taking a, a, you know, two hour lunch and we have to, you know, whatever. It's, uh, you know, it's been a very busy time for veterinarians because everybody's short-staffed and everybody got puppies. And uh, it, it sounds like they're not graduating enough people from vet schools to meet the demand. Is that also part of the problem? I think that is, yeah, I think that's part of the problem, but certainly COVID really accelerated everything. And a lot of people, um, 
people left the profession and people also the support staff, which is, which is also very difficult jobs that are very underpaid and, you know, in general across the profession, Mm -hmm. you know, you're answering the phone and somebody's calling and they're crying about their animal and you have to say, well, I, you know, we can't fit you in today. We're already double booked. The the doctor, you know, we, we just can't. And the person's saying, you know, it's going to cost more at the urgent care center. I can't afford it. What am I going to do? How am I going to get there? It's two towns away, you know, whatever. And you you know, you're the receptionist on the phone with this person. And then, you know, receptionists get yelled at you people don't care about animals. Um, You know, they're sort of bearing some of the the brunt. Um, And then you have the technicians and the vet assistants that are in the room with us. And they're also helping and getting some of this brunt experiences as well. And so some of these people are like, you know what, I can make more money doing something else. Why am I going to put myself through this? I didn't go to vet school. I mean, technicians have gone to school, but a lot of times the the people, you know, if they haven't sort of invested in schooling for to work at, at a veterinary clinic, you know, it's very easy for them to go get another job where they're not, you know, yeah, they're not working with warm fuzzies, but they're not subject to, you know, this kind of stress and potentially abuse. Well, Karen, after reading your memoir, I I am grateful for your service to animals. So um, let's end like that, right? (laughs) Thank you so much. And I really want people to not feel as guilty about their care of their animals, especially when it comes to end of life. That was really one of my my main motivation. It definitely comes through. Dr. Karen Fine's book is called The Other Family Doctor, a veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. Karen, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.